It's an imperial act. That's what the mass shooter is doing. But we actually, you know, we feel despair because nobody's doing anything about this issue, right? We feel impotent. And so we can use that. We can actively be passive. That's what meditation is. We can stay home and say to these politicians that aren't doing a thing about this, and they're all liars, and they're all psychopaths, that we're in charge, right? Democracy means the people, not the elites. We can change the system. Consciousness, the notion of the self, personality structure, transactional analysis, symbiosis, Zen Buddhism, teacher-student, relationships, training yourself in how to think. To subvert is to undermine the existing system of inscribed power and authority. What's happening in the digital space, the virtual world. Much of us live in a hyper-stimulated present where language itself has become the info currency in the sequence of corporate capitalism. The injunction of the virtual world is... The gatekeepers of our speech and written word are global tech monopolies. We cannot transcend or go beyond our lack through craving. What are we going to do? How are we going to live our life? The subversive therapist is about what the virtual world is doing to us and what we can do about it. In this episode, Andrew presents a revolutionary teacher-student relational philosophy. You will hear him describe subversion in the context of his psychotherapy process. Subversiveness is living as you will without being subject to anyone, living as a Martian does. The aim of transactional analysis and Zen is the elimination of conceptual thinking, to wake up to simple consciousness, which is pre-egoic, to think for oneself, or simply to be a Martian, who is void of preconceptions. Subversion is the answer to our own cultural conditioning as well as the answer to the authority of the U.S. political system. Finally, Andrew continues to advocate for a social movement via a stay-at-home day on April 20th. Enjoy. I'm Andrew Archer. I'm a licensed independent clinical social worker. Uh, I'm going to basically talk about my process, which has evolved over you know, a good 10 years in terms of psychotherapy. Uh, Zen Therapy, that title comes from a book by David Brazier uh, called Zen Therapy. And I, and I can get you any of these references and I can send you the slides, so don't feel like you have to memorize it or write it down. Uh, Zen uh, escapes uh, conceptual designation or description. So what I'm going to talk about is my personal and relational experience with Zen. Zen Buddhism is what I'm trained in. Uh, but that's, a, you could argue, a religion, certainly a philosophy, but it's a, a practice. And Zen is not Zen Buddhism. Uh, it's much more um, almost a- ancient. comes, you know, about 1,500 years ago, 1,600 years ago. So D.T. Suzuki, who brought uh, Zen to the West in the 50s, uh, he describes it as the sound of snowfall. That's what, what Zen is. And you're like, what the does that mean the sound of snowfall? Well, that's the point. Uh, Zen is supposed to wake you up and throw you off kilter uh, to wake up. The, the aim of Zen is satori or enlightenment. Uh, so it, it's free from concepts. And, the, and that is the, the aim is to let go of thinking, to uh, just be the moment, meditation. Uh, that's why I brought you all together to the same place, the same time to start. And essentially, 
getting outside of your head, coming to your core, your center, thinking more intuitively, intuitive knowledge. You know, I have, I have three little kids uh, and they think with their, their gut, you know, not so much analytically, they're all feelings, right? For better or worse, <laughs> a three-year-old, I was telling somebody in a therapy session the other day, three-year-old's main job is to make their parents angry, <laughs> right? It's like, so they, uh, they switch in between these states of mind that we talk about uh, real radically. So what I'm thinking is I'll just describe my therapy process. I assume you've had enough PowerPoints uh, for the week, so I'm not gonna give you a bunch of stats uh, and information. Uh, but we can talk about meditation. I can explain what I do with all my therapy clients. I actually sit down on the floor and do a meditation training with all of them and get them practicing uh, concentration practice, which is different from what we did, which I'll explain. Uh, that's from my training in hypnosis, where we go inward with Zen meditation. You're trying to stop thinking. So you stay here. You stay in the moment rather than going inside. And the, the theory or model that I've landed on in psychotherapy is called transactional analysis. Has anybody heard of transactional analysis? So a couple people. Eric Byrne founded it in 1951. He was a, a psychiatrist, a, a physician. Um, he developed it, kind of pulled stuff out of Freudian psychoanalysis and made it his own. Uh, so we can talk about that. And like I said, I started training, studying, Zen Buddhism and other Eastern philosophies in 2009. I was introduced by a professor of mine who's become a good friend. Uh, so that's where the, whatever you want to call what I'm doing is this um, marriage of Zen and transactional analysis. Both aim to wake you up from your conditioning, meaning detach from ego. Uh, we, we have this delusion about who we are based on the roles we've played, our family systems, um, identities, that kind of thing. So ironically, in our culture, everything is about making yourself into a project that's to be optimized you know, for achievement. Think of like social media. It's all competition for likes and uh, notoriety. You build yourself up. This is what I talked about on Wednesday, is where because of you know, things like podcasts and YouTube channels, we're essentially making an empire of ourselves with all of this uh, technology constantly tracking ourselves, you know, the wearables and everything is building up that you're this solid, separate entity. Uh, and Zen points at that as delusion and the way to wake up is through relationships. And transactional analysis does a similar kind of thing, but it has this whole apparatus for how to understand yourself. So then to forget all about that and start thinking from the here and now. So what's interesting is what's come together is my political philosophy, my parenting philosophy, my psychotherapy education, and spiritual practices are all the same thing, which is I'm teaching people to undermine the authority of their conditioning. Uh, fancy word is subversion. Uh, and that's what we need to do uh, politically as well, um, is undermine the kind of predacious system, racist system that we uh, live in, but you can start with your own cultural conditioning and this identity that you've created to keep yourself uh, oriented in the world. And so TA just says, you know, 
get well and analyze later. <laughs> so that's what I do with my clients is focus on them getting well. Forget about how we get there. Uh, but, you know, forgetting about this uh, identity that you've uh, created is the essential aspect of it. So that's what we're going to get into. Any questions about that or comments? So a client or a prospective client contacts me, email, phone. I schedule a free consultation with them. So they come to my office, they sit down, and they, they essentially tell me that there's something wrong with them, uh, that there's some, some sense of lack, they're not good enough, they got some anxiety, whatever it is. And then I explain my therapy process to them. And what I say is, don't think of this as like a doctor and patient relationship. Uh, this is a teacher-student dynamic. So I'm gonna teach you meditation, I'm gonna teach you transactional analysis to the best of my ability, and you're gonna learn and study it as a student. And most of you work in the school system. A good teacher, you know, helps their student to become the teacher. You know, they wanna give it all away, so you have it, and then you go on with your life. So I'm not trying to hold on to clients. Uh, <clears throat> I want them to learn this stuff, apply it, teach themselves, and then go on. I mean, Zen, you know, Zen is, uh, is a revolutionary um, process, and it, it's, it's meant to uh, challenge or overthrow even your own teacher. <laughs> you know, so, so that sometimes the, the uh, the metaphor with Zen is like, it's like a raft. You use it to get to the other side of the river and then you throw it away as you burn it, you light it on fire. So you don't believe anything you're taught. You question everything. Uh, you don't take anything personally. That's the, the essence of Zen. And so Brazier, you know, says in a different way what T.A. says, which is I'm okay, you're okay. And so I tell this to people when they come in. I'm a normal person. I got three kids, I got problems, <laughs> I got <laughs> issues, uh, so I'm just going to be a regular person. I'm going to be in the role of therapist, so you're not going to hear about me complaining about my kids and rushing out the door, but I'm just a regular person, so I, I assume you're okay as well. But you have problems, and the problem is you were conditioned by your parents, mostly, in society. So we need to work on that conditioning, and TA gives a very straightforward model to do that and then you pair it with meditation practice. So how I really started on this path <clears throat> was working with this guy. Uh, Flint Sparks, believe it or not, it's his real name. <laughs> his middle name is Flint, first name is Thomas, but he was a psychologist. He's a gay man from Texas. Uh, and the first time I met him, I was like, priest. <laughs> Yuck. Like, I, I want to, I went through Catholicism already. I don't need, I don't need more than that. And then he shows me during lunch at this retreat I went to, he's got a full back tattoo. It's completely covered. Uh, so, you know, what, what's, don't read a book by its cover kind of thing. I had already judged him, but if you want to know about kind of my background, you know, I've learned everything from him. So you can look up Flint Sparks, he's got a tent talk. Uh, but it's this teacher-student relationship. So, so Zen is relational. You can't figure it out from intellect, and you can't figure it out on your own. You need a teacher for it. 
So I'm, I'm uh, recreating that with clients that I meet. It's a teacher-student relationship, and that's what I um, tell them. So any questions or comments so far? Does this sound like other psychotherapies you've encountered? I, I don't use the medical model. Even though I'm trained in the DSM and psychiatric language, don't use it at all. I'll do that talk next year. <laughs> so in Zen, the concept is emptiness. You know, can you stop your thinking, even though you rush in here with your heart rate up and everything, is can you just be? And uh, the, the, the Taoist um, language is, in terms of relationships, not two, not one. So we're not the same person, but fundamentally, we're the same. And we're constantly just in relationship with one another, symbiotic relationships. So when uh, clients come in, I'm a Martian. I'm an alien from another planet. I don't know anything about you. I don't know what's wrong with you. I don't, I don't know what anxiety means. I don't know what depression means. I don't even know who I am outside of um, in the role of a teacher or a therapist. So everything they say is brand new. And when they're talking, my uh, conscious experience is pictures of what they're talking about. So their reality is my reality. When I'm not sleep deprived because of my two-year-old, <laughs> then that, that happens, okay? So, I, so this concept of Martian is you have no preconceptions about, okay, this is who you are, uh, judgments, you're, you're uh, operating from what Zen calls beginner's mind, or Zen Buddhism calls beginner's mind, is I've never seen this before. I don't know anything. I don't know who you are. So you have to tell me all these ideas about what's wrong with you and the sense of lack and, and explain it all to me. And then we'll work from that. So it's, be, it's prior to knowing. Martian is, and we'll get into this, but is a form of simple consciousness. Uh, which is different from ego consciousness. If, you, if any of you have kids or have had kids, you know there's this amazing transition between uh, a baby that, that doesn't have object permanence and isn't self-aware, and then all of a sudden they are self-aware. When does that happen? How does that happen? That's the mystery. That's the, the great uh, birth and death is what uh, Zen refers to. And I'll explain what I think I understand of that uh, process, but suffice to say, I'm looking through the eyes of innocence, like a child looks at you, okay? They don't see race when they're real little. They don't see gender so much as we do, okay? They just want to connect with you. They want to be in relationship with you. When I'm reading books to my kids, they don't want to sit off in the corner. They want to sit on dad's lap, okay? We, we need that connection. We don't need physical stroking like an infant does, but we need this, the social stimulation. So they come in for an assessment, you know, I write down everything that they say, but I'm listening for the story within the story because when we were little kids, we made some decisions based on our parent figures, what they were doing, they were drinking too much, they were fighting, I'm never gonna be like my dad, I'm always gonna do this. So we made commitments. Like I have clients that'll, they'll say, when I was eight, I decided I was never gonna drink alcohol. I was like, that's a little early <laughs> to, to make that decision. <laughs> and the idea is that you create a life plan based on this decision. So you're scripted to have this trajectory for where you're gonna go. 
you know, this is another thing about Western culture. We think we're self-determined, that we're making all our own choices. No, no, no. That's not, that's not how it works. There's a, there's a small window of autonomy if you can cut through all of this conditioning, uh, which is what I'll talk about. So I'm listening for what this script might be. And I'll talk about scripts as we go. Um, and then I say, OK, well, what do you want to change about yourself? What's the problem here? And they say, I want to be happier. I want to drink less. I want to quit smoking, whatever it is. OK, I say, all right, let's do make this contract together. You're going to do x, y, and z. And here's what I'm going to teach you, TA, uh, meditation practice. OK, so they come back uh, into these therapy sessions. and. Obviously, I have a bias that I want them to get better. But I don't say, like somebody asked me in the last lecture, like, what's your views on cannabis? It's like, I don't have any views on cannabis. I want to know what your views are on cannabis, or Prozac, or cocaine, or, you know, I want to know what people are putting into their system. But I don't have a moral issue with that in the moment. You know, I'm just trying to really understand what's going on inside their head, how they've been conditioned, uh, that sort of thing. But I do want them to get well. And so I can't disguise that fact. Most of my 20-something clients, I'm like, you got a date. <laughs> you got a, even if you think you don't want to be in a relationship, you know, there's a whole unconscious you know, sexual drives and things. You do want to be in a relationship. You're scared. Most of them are scared to go on dates and things. It's like, that's how you figure yourself out. Everybody comes in and says, well, I got to work on myself first before <laughs> I get into a relationship. No, no, no. That is working on yourself, getting into a relationship and letting go of all these neurotic habits and, and things that you do. So I'm not making the client better. I'm giving them the tools, the constructs, the meditation training so that they can start learning again and start thinking for themselves. They're thinking based on their conditioning from their, their parents. So I want them to get better, but it's their choice. If they don't want to change, it says on my paperwork, if you don't want to change, cancel the appointment. Because it's a consequence of therapy, is you're going to change. Okay, but if you don't want to, if your mom's making you come in, forget about it. It's not going to work out. All Eric Byrne was interested in was how to cure patients. He wasn't trying to manage clients' symptoms. He wasn't trying to you know, fit them into society. He wanted to figure out what this scripting was and for them to have what he called script cure or make re-decisions, new decisions, not from when you were little, but from right now. What do you want to do? Who do you want to be? You know, we had that life plan to keep us safe and to survive, but now it's, it's not useful. And so he makes you know, uh, use of, um, Metaphors like surgery, psychotherapy is like surgery. You do a whole lot of prep before you make any cuts. Lots of preparation. And he talked about protection, um, potency, and permission. You have to protect the client from what's called the critical parent or the inner critic that is going to give them beatings and bash them. If you don't do this, you should do this. You know, that's an echo of your parents. Uh, your parent figures, uh, and you have to give them permission to think for themselves and to feel feelings and to exist and to do things they want to do. Uh, but the potency is, well, when do you do that with the client? That's the, the art of it. It's not, this isn't CBT, this isn't DBT. You're trying to analyze with the client so they can cure themselves. So you're setting up the dynamics 
where they can cure themselves. The therapist isn't doing it. And the obstruction is the ego, the social conditioning, the adaptations, the decisions you made when you were little. Uh, and you know, besides all of that, because we have ego consciousness, we can identify ourselves as separate. Uh, Martians are not separate. <laughs> they, don't have, they don't have an ego. They're just the moment. But we are conditioned, like I, I have an almost two-year-old, we say, you're Vivian, you're Vivian, you're Vivian. So she says, oh, I'm Vivian, I'm Vivian. And then across time, she identifies with this identification, this identity we're, we're imposing on her. She's not free. I mean, little kids are free up until, you know, four or five, and then they, they have the ability to reflect in a different way, into the past, into the future. My cats can't do that, or at least I hope not. <laughs> you know, uh, a turtle cannot project their own death like we can. Okay, this is a problem. And so, uh, because of ego consciousness, we always have a sense of lack, we're always anxious, because we crave for something more. Oh, I want to be taller. I want to be skinnier. I want to have more money. I want to have a better house. It's like the, this is the four-year-old now. Four-year-old wanting mine, mine, gimme, gimme. Okay, there's no end to the craving uh, because as soon as you get here or here, there's like another plateau to get to. So it's the sense of lack that drives us uh, for more based on our conditioning. Like I said in the beginning, I'm training my clients to think for themselves, not to ad adapt to the social, the, the, the political uh, institutions that they move around in. But on an individual level, it's this conditioning, what they call the parent ego state, is a synthesis of your parent figures. And this says what you should and shouldn't do. Does anybody in here do things they know they shouldn't do? <laughs> That's weird. What? <laughs> because that conditioning is external. It's what your parent figure said because they didn't want you to run into the street without looking both ways or to put a marble in your mouth. So it's for survival. But now that we're grown-ups, we don't need someone telling us what we should and shouldn't do. Right? We can decide for ourselves. But that, that voice or voices is stuck in your head, whether your parents are alive or dead. It's stuck in there. And so I say, you know, it's not like you got to get rid of all of that stuff, but you can't treat that as reality. Most of my clients are very analytical uh, and they can generalize about things and they're very judgmental and kind of moralistic because they're identified with that parent ego state that is telling them how to live. They don't understand that that is a, a process of conditioning that you learned. And so I say what Byrne says, which is you need to have a friendly divorce from the parent state. You can hear that voice, but you understand that it's not reality, that it was conditioned. And so you're undermining the power and authority of your conditioning. So you can say, no, I can you know, uh, have a drink at 3 o'clock and, and relax for a little bit even though the voice is telling you to work and be productive. It's like, so, so because in Western culture, we're just this giant head and no body, it's like we think we're our thinking, that that's who we are. And I say to them, no, 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 there's a, <laughs> there's a whole world out here <laughs> if you can get outside your head, and then you can do what you want to 
do, but it requires disobeying the parent ego state. The, the voice that's critical of you, that's analyzing who you are uh, and saying you need to be more, that kind of thing. And it's, it's scary because this is like the sort of anchor that has kept people, you know, in one place to be able to do what they have to do, but it's not reality. And when I invite people to sit down and access what's called the adult state, which is just mindful awareness, people are like, oh, wow, I could <laughs> calm down really quickly. It's like I heard all this stuff about meditation. I thought I couldn't slow my mind down or whatever. And it's like, oh, you, people just need permission to do that. And, but it's not about self-help. You're not meditating to be a better person. That's what everything, you know, mindfulness has become a commodity form that's being taught for everybody to be more productive and, and be less anxious or be less depressed or whatever. But the Zen masters never taught meditation. So be wary of anybody with a shaved head telling you <laughs> how to think and what to do. That's not Zen. Okay, meditation is not Zen. It's, it's quietism. And it puts the emphasis back on us. It's us individuals that need to change, not society, not the material realities. No, we just need to work on ourselves. That was sarcasm. Okay, so script cure, Satori, Nirvana, waking up is all the same thing. Okay, th these constructs are just a way to understand and facilitate this process of uh, waking up. But it's this transition from simple consciousness. You know, a baby is born, they can't think like we think, right? We train them to think like we think, and we tell them they're a separate individual, and voila, at some moment, this, this, uh, this appearance of separateness, ego consciousness, they're aware of themselves as separate, happens. Uh, Richard DeMartino says between two and five, I don't think you can ever know exactly when that happens, but the point of Zen is to return to that pre-egogic place, the place of a little baby that doesn't know anything, doesn't know who they are, they're just the moment, right? Because a, a baby reflexively responds to everything that's happening. Mostly the mother, but re reflexive. It isn't reflecting, oh, I'm a baby that needs to nurse or eat or take a nap, right? They're just needs and wants. That's it. In the moment, they can't reflect. But through our socialization process, Vivian knows, oh, that's Vivian. I'm, I'm separate from dad and mom. But because that that in, implies ego consciousness, we suffer. We suffer in a different way than the cat or the turtle, certainly than the infant, because we can think of ourselves as separate, we can forecast into the future, we can have this idea that there's stuff wrong with us that needs to improve. So again, Martian is just going back here. You don't know, and this is very, Countercultural, right? Everything is, you know yourself, you got to be true to yourself. Be who you are. That just means be the little kid <laughs> you were in your family. That's not interesting. <laughs> like, but because we can reflect, we take these little snapshots in, in our head and we create like a reel of film that that's me. I went to uh, a private school in South Minneapolis, and then my parents moved to Bloomington, then I was in this house, and then I went here, then I went to college in Mass. It's like we can, we can pronounce that. That's who I am. Identity is just uh, a verb. 
It's an expression. It's not a real solid thing. And this is what uh, Zen really points to, is this delusion that we're separate. Uh, and instead, the idea is that we're interdependent, we're impermanent. We're certainly not in control like we think we are. So <laughs> I debated putting this in here. This is an ultrasound of uh, my second uh, child. This is JJ. His original face. Can people see this? The head, the eyes, the nose. Can you kind of make that out? He can't be more than a couple months old. And the, with Zen, they teach koans, or Zen stories to facilitate this waking up. And they say, you know, what was your, the, the original face? What was your face before you were born? Is a koan. And, and it's funny with technology because we can actually <laughs> see the face <laughs> before you were born. Or you could say, what was, what was your face before your parents met? He's like, what? wait a minute. Oh yeah, our face is constantly changing. It's not the same face across time. I mean, certainly not when we're two months old. So these, these stories, these koans, are a teacher and a student. Um, and so the teacher gives you this, this koan to study and to figure out. But you can't figure it out. But you know, what's the sound of one hand clapping is another one. It's meant that you're supposed to collapse all your doubts and thinking into the koan. I'm trying to debate if, yeah, I don't think I have time to give you um, an example, but it's not something I necessarily do in, in therapy with people. What I do uh, is teach them a secular uh, meditation practice. So just like we did, except we'd be on the floor, uh, cross-legged with a cushion and a mat. And you can try this if you want. Zen training, you put your right hand down, your left hand on top, and then your thumbs come together. It's called the mudra. And I just invite them to stay with their breath. And when they get inside their head, to come back here. So it's just a returning to the moment so that um, that becomes your default. Rather than being stuck inside your head, you're in reality. You're reality testing. You're right here. Uh, and the, the paradox is, you know, people say, well, how am I supposed to stop myself from thinking? Well, your brain produces thoughts. <laughs> I mean, it's like saying, how do I get my heart to stop pumping blood? That's what it does. That's the function of it. So you can't get your brain to stop thinking. But paradoxically, you can stop your mind from thinking in the moment for a second. And then it goes off. But you keep coming back. And the waking up is uh, an understanding that that, that, uh, that thinking in that sense of being a separate object with subjectivity is actually um, delusion, is that we're empty. There isn't a separate self inside, even though it feels like I'm right there between my ears, behind my eyes. Neuroscience can't find it. They can find the part of the brain that produces a sense of self. But it's not there because consciousness is always the same from infancy through adulthood. Uh, but we, get, we train ourselves into ego consciousness. And that's what we're trying, in a sense, to reverse uh, with this training. And after I've done the meditation training, uh, we've analyzed the games people play. I don't have time to get into all of that. Uh, I get them into a group process. So they're, they're studying transactional analysis uh, in group therapy. And we're trying to figure out what, did you, what decision did you make? 
what is this script? Uh, a common one is mindlessness. So people are, are trained in their family system, don't think, don't feel. Uh, this is prevalent in the alcoholic family system because dad gets home, takes off his boots, cracks a beer. He's not thinking, he's not educating himself. Um, <clears throat> mindlessness, joylessness, this is what I think is happening culturally. Like I said, we're just heads. I mean, think of like the metaverse, the, the icons don't have any legs or anything, or Zoom meetings, you're just your head. I refuse to do telehealth therapy. I do it very sparingly. You're just working with somebody's mind. But when I do therapy, I work with the full body because most of your understanding of what's going on with the person is, is latent communication. So when there's a silence, what do they do? Or how do they move their body? Or are they shaking their leg and different things? That tells you a lot of information. When you're on Zoom, it's just their head. And so it's more performative. That's what I noticed right away. It's like, oh, I'm performing therapy. I gotta tell them something smart or do something. That's not, it's different in, in the room because you can experience uh, a gap in the communication. You can certainly experience uh, seizing, you know, when uh, you get in conflict in, in person. You can talk about what happens internally, the energy, feelings, that kind of thing. So trying to figure out what this script is so that they can make uh, a redecision. The name of the, the therapy groups I do are called Becoming a Real Person, meaning not the person you were when you were a kid, how you were trained to be, the adaptations you did, um, all of that, but from the here and now, you're thinking from here and now, you're making decisions from here and now, and you've given up things like going crazy and committing suicide. You're gonna deal with your own problems. The TA is very much about self-responsibility. You know, it was, it evolved in the mid 20th century, so we have this booming middle class like nowhere else in, in the planet. Okay, so you gotta take it from its context. There's certainly issues with it, but it's, it's all about the emphasis on the client that they can they can figure out you know, this, this virtual reality in their head, this artificial system. Is this scripting, you know, simply put, is ego. And it gets in the way, people doing what they want and being creative and spontaneous because we end up just managing ourselves. We have this armor all over our body to protect ourselves from getting intimate with people into doing the things we want to do spontaneously, that kind of thing. So the script, analyst says if you stop thinking the way your parents ordered you to think and start thinking for yourself you will think better so you got to give up this scripting this cultural conditioning and uh, then it, then it's liberation the same thing that zen is promoting the easiest example of script is the, the movie The Truman Show with Jim Carrey in the late 90s. You know, he's, he's born and in utero he was adopted by a television corporation. Uh, and Kristoff is the producer of this TV show and he has this Sea Haven Island that, that's meant to look like a real city and it's fictitious. It's all a Hollywood set. Everybody has uh, microphones on them, there's cameras everywhere, they're selling products within, <laughs> within the uh, television show. It's all broadcast live. Okay, point being, Truman, Jim Carrey's character, he thinks he's Truman Burbank, but it's not real. It's all made up, and he's conditioned in different ways, but he thinks, well, I'm making my own choices. I'm autonomous. 
I'm, I'm doing all this stuff on my own. That's our, that's our problem as well, is that we, I think I'm Andrew, and I've always been Andrew, and I'm making all my own decisions and choices, but they're all adaptive. They're adaptations based on the cultural conditioning. And what does Truman do in the end of, um, I, I like this movie, that's why I said this example. But what does he do? He, sa he says to the producer, was, it, was none of it real? And he says, no, you were real. He's trying to keep him on the, on the set. And he, Truman doesn't buy that. He said he'd rather go into the real world than be this fake person. So that's what I'm inviting people to do. Do you want to be a real person? Then you can't just go based on this program. And we're like wind-up dolls conditioned by uh, culture. So the first question in the therapy session is the last question in treatment. What do you want to change about yourself? Not this, this made up person from the past. Right now, what do you want to do? You know, everything in American culture, especially with mental health and psychiatry, is like you're a victim. You're plagued by this disorder that like you were hit by lightning or something and you have no agency over changing. That, changing. That's not how I treat uh, my clients. I treat them like real people that can think and they can respond and they can heal themselves. So they're responsible for change, but some of the work is this core material, this ego that was constructed uh, that needs to be dealt with because people don't have access to certain feelings, they avoid certain feelings, they engage in passive behavior. That's what I talked about with the mass shootings is uh, the mass shooters agitated, about 67% of them before they commit the violence. Uh, and violence is actually a passive behavior because you've gotten rid of uh, any responsibility for your actions. You know, again, think of the little kid that grabs the toy or bites a kid from somebody. They're trying to get rid of this agitation. And so the, vi the violence is to um, discharge the agitation, uh, but it's passive. Uh, incapacitation is another thing. People having panic attacks or certainly suicide is they've given up any thinking uh, or responsibility for solving the problem. So I confront people about that and say, you have to think and you have to solve problems. We work together with it, but it's their uh, responsibility. So just to uh, close, I shared this with the, uh, with the group on Wednesday. I've been studying uh, mass shootings uh, and the virtual world, and I made this you know, connection between the two in the, uh, the talk. But so I'll tell you just a quick anecdote, and maybe this is my introduction to myself. <laughs> I do these online lectures, Zoom lectures, for a drug and alcohol agency. And every time I do them, I'm trying to get fired because I don't like doing them for various reasons. But they let me talk about whatever I want to talk about. Sort of. <laughs> I gave an analysis of the Columbine massacre for one of the talks. And in that talk, I said, 420, which is the anniversary of Columbine, my kindergartner ain't going to school. It's statistically the most likely day for a school shooting. Now, is it paranoid? Is it irrational? You know, is that really going to stop anything? Is he likely to have a shooting at a school? Who cares? He's not going, <laughs> and I encourage you all to spread this idea 
Because, like I said, the mass shooter is engaged in passive behavior. They're playing games. It's cops and robbers that evolves into, now I've got you, you son of a is a game. That's what they're doing. It's a revenge game. It's the same game that uh, the United States military does abroad, places like Syria, Afghanistan, terrorists, is we get revenge because we're the top gun. Okay, nobody's going to mess with us. It, it's an imperial act. That's what the mass shooter is doing. But we actually, you know, we feel despair because nobody's doing anything about this issue, right? We feel impotent. And so we can use that. We can actively be passive. That's what meditation is. We can stay home and say to these politicians that aren't doing a thing about this, and they're all liars, and they're all psychopaths, that we're in charge, right? Democracy means the people, not the elites. We can change the system, but it's not going to be through legislation. You know, when Columbine happened, they didn't change anything with the gun laws. It all got shot down. Now we don't even think about it. It's just Uvalde, Highland Park, <clears throat> you know, one thing after the other. Social movements are going to change things. They always have. They always will. So my idea with this, well, I didn't even tell you the, <laughs> the reason. So I do this talk, and I say, 420, you're not going to school. I get an email a week later. Somebody within the treatment program started getting anxious believe it or not, and said, you know, I don't want my kid going to school. I don't want treatment that day. And so they reprimand me and say, you got to be careful. These are very impressionable people. They talk about them like they're kids, like they can't think for themselves. But I was like, wait a minute. That's the appropriate response. We shouldn't go to work on 420. We shouldn't go to school. We should resist through peace that this, this violence needs to stop. It needs to stop overseas. It needs to stop at home. You know, 45 thousand people get sh killed by guns in the United States. That's a war. The police kill unarmed, mostly people of color, three times, three people a day. That's warfare. Okay, so we have it here. It's not, they, the media obscures it like it's out over there is war in Ukraine. No, there's war here and we need a solidarity movement. You know, nobody wants kids being shot with guns, right? This, this is not a political issue. It's not a right-left issue. This is the right thing to do. So. When, when I got this information, I was like, we should just not go. We should, you know, uh, I mean, I guess you, technically it's a strike, but I bought this website because just about every day my kids go, Dad, is it a stay-at-home day? <laughs> Which they're saying is the weekend or like a holiday. Stay-at-home day, Dad. And I was like, stay-at-home day, okay. Yeah, so this, this website, there's no emails, there's no listserv, it all just says a little bit about mass shootings. You can share it with people. At the very least, talk about it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not grandiose that this is going to be a, a national strike. Uh, but each year, he's going to stay home. And people are, at the very least, forced to talk about this issue. Okay? People are afraid to talk about this issue because they think it's a gun rights, right versus left thing. There's very simple things we can do, like education campaigns on safes, licenses for guns. You know, there's 400 million guns. Nobody's taking away our guns. I mean, it's in the Second Amendment. But these politicians, they love it that we're terrified and impotent feeling and we're isolated. You know, the smartphone isolates us. It doesn't assemble us, okay? So that's my idea. I have uh, time for 
questions, uh, and I can stick around a little bit. But this is my podcast. It's on the back of these uh, business cards. I was reluctant because I got off of social media years ago to do anything online. But I read Jenny O'Dell's book, How to Do Nothing, and she kind of convinced me that I'll do this podcast on my own terms. I'll put it out there. It's free. I don't really have to do much with it. I upload lectures and things. Um, and then it's there. So the first season is all about, or first series is all about the virtual world and me talking about transactional analysis and some of that in series two. But now I'm focusing more on uh, what I'm talking about here, subversion. Is that, uh, you know, if, even if we can't shut things down on the 20th of April, I want my kids to know that this is an option, is collective organizing, pushing back uh, against power, because they're trained to be docile. They're trained to be obedient, especially in school. So yeah, that's the information there. You can find my website for my practice as well, if you're interested. But thanks so much for your attention. Thanks for coming.